Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. So I guess it's just you and me against the entire radical left. Sisyphus had it easy. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a new study shows that contrary to conventional wisdom, opposites do not, in fact, attract. Okay, maybe. But then how have you and I been able to do this podcast for over 11 years? Answer me that. And, and maintain that attraction. You know? <laughs> exactly. It never... it's, a, <laughs> it's a longitudinal. Role uh, play, but... probably, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, you just to toss in a little, a little variety, <laughs> a little... Uh... <laughs> You're the fireman, and I'm like the 12-year-old uh, delinquent arson that you find. <laughs> is, that, in... <laughs> is that where it went? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> I can't make uh, things up as I go anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, it's it's taken us a while to get to the point where we're recording, so we're already a little loopy. I don't yeah. know how this is going to go, <laughs> but okay. The opposites attract thing. I know that's a saying, but did anybody ever believe it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good question. That's, that's like the kind of uh, of psychology via like pithy like uh, sayings or idioms where you're just right. like. You know, it's widely believed that, you know, a bird in the hand is worth more than the bush, but is it? <laughs> more than two Recent in the meta analysis <laughs> shows that actually uh, the bird in the hand is uh, it's actually worth three in the bush. And <laughs> I like in the press release, um, there's this quote Our findings demonstrate that birds of a feather are indeed more likely to flock together, said indeed. first author Tanya Horowitz. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah no shade on tanya horowitz i guess that's what you're gonna say like you need to say something about like the study at least analyzed like a shit ton of data and like it is an interesting question um but it's it's sort of sucks that you're forced to summarize it that way Uh, we should say that on this episode we will be trying to uh, wrap our heads around blood meridian and wrap our heads around trying to do an episode on blood meridian yeah Am I, it's uh, perhaps the most intimidating uh, topic that we have uh, picked, at least. Yeah. I, I don't know. It feels that way to me. It feels like this is a task that we might not be up yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. 
I should say IQ was a little more intimidating for me <laughs> for various reasons. <laughs> that was this so, is hard. This is even harder. <laughs> that was so good for me. I was just like, I'm going to be the interviewer. I can ask questions <laughs> and... Oh, like, let, that, let's do that now then for this episode. Yeah, I'll just sure. I'll questions. do that again. Yeah. That yeah, worked. You were like an English major. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the, the interviewer. You be the Cormac McCarthy scholar. No, no, the opposite. Uh, I, that's what, <laughs> what I meant is let's switch. Well, that's not what you said, so it's too late. <laughs> so first, this was a big meta-analysis uh, that looked at studies from the last, like, over 100 years, right? Like, coupled with its own data collection on thousands of UK couples. <laughs> right, which I don't yeah. think are representative. And Like, how would they know whether they're similar to their partners? Because they never talk or <laughs> say anything <laughs> to each other. <laughs> they just mumble spotty um, yeah. so okay I, like we should say this is um this is a study that was done by researchers at cu boulder and published in in nature human behavior recently so it's a study on assortative mating the question is like how similar are people who choose to pair off um with each other and so they looked at a ton of different traits like features psychological traits physical features behavioral patterns stuff like um you know alcohol consumption and cigarette smoking to things like extroversion political orientation height and i guess the take-home message is just that what what is referred to assortative mating is true that there is a positive correlation on almost everything and and the positive correlation varies, of course, like some of them are pretty weak, but positive and some of them are pretty strong, but positive. But the ones that are pretty strong, but positive are like kind of obvious. Like if your partner smokes, you're more likely to smoke. Yeah. That kind of, like those are really strong findings. If you're a teetotaler, uh, your partner is more likely to be a teetotaler. But yeah, right. You would think yeah. that. People who don't want to be around drinking, there's people with uh, previous alcohol issues are going to want not want to be with a partner that's drinking. And then if you're just a sober Sally, you're not going to want to be around like a bunch of drunks, probably. So Right, right. I mean, that, it doesn't seem like that would last. The In the UK uh, partner study that they did, these are all heterosexual um, couples because... They purposefully hate gay people. They, they don't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they think it's unnatural no. and immoral. Yeah. Uh, things like political values, religiosity, and educational attainment are up there at like correlations of like 0.5, slightly more than 0.5. Um, and then as you go down the line, um, you get still pretty strong things like on um, height uh, which is like maybe a point two, looks like it's like a point two five, And then you start getting into some personality characteristics like openness to experience, generalized anxiety, conscientiousness, and the effects start going down. And the weakest positive correlation that they had was like 0.18, I think, on extroversion. I don't know if this is obvious, but I feel like saying it. A correlation doesn't mean that people are the same level. Right. So, for instance, height is is can be highly correlated, but there's still going to be a big mean difference between the height of the man and the height of the woman. Um, the correlation doesn't say anything about that. So when things are positively correlated, it doesn't mean that people are close to each other at the at the mean level. It doesn't mean that people are like right around the same level of liberal or conservative. It just means that as conservatism, say, goes up 
in one. So it goes up in the other. So the, the birds of a feather versus the opposites attract, like it made me wonder whether correlation was the right way to answer that question. Because if like across a population, what you're seeing is like that on a say, say like a, a scale where 10 is super conservative and one is super liberal, you might have a bunch of men who are eights and nines and a bunch of women who are ones and twos. And the ones are partnered with the eights and the twos are partnered with the nines and you get a strong positive correlation. But for any one of those couples, you wouldn't say that they are birds, of a, feather. birds of a feather, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I, I feel like the spirit of it is still the same. Like if you're a 5'10 man and you're with a 5'10 woman, that doesn't seem to be more of birds and a feather than with a woman who is, say, slightly above average in height. Like you are slightly above average in height for being a man, you know, like yeah. so I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like it, I, it, it, you're right. It depends on the trait. Like it totally depends on on like the thing. So like for political orientation, you could still have like a, a people could still be on the opposite sides of the political spectrum and be positively correlated. If the groups are that radically different, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like there, there, there could be a mean difference. Um, and they don't really talk about that. And I could be getting some interpretation wrong, but that's just my understanding. The other thing <laughs> um, they don't, um, as far as I could tell in my cursory reading of the article, they don't seem to differentiate between whether they grew took evolve to sort of having these same types of interests or orientations or traits. Obviously yeah. you couldn't do that with height, but you could do that with politics. You could uh, even do, you could do it with drinking or you could do it with smoking, you know, if like, uh, so like, did they start out one was a smoker and one wasn't a smoker. So it doesn't distinguish between people who just naturally want to be with somebody like them and people kind of their interests converge over the course of their relationship. And I do think that's a big thing too. It's like the difference between somebody who got together early in life, you know, your interests almost by the nature of you being in a relationship have to start getting a little closer probably than they were before versus like people who get together in their thirties and their habits and interests are more set. And so that's always a little trickier to negotiate, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. And for, for it to really be called assortative mating, like what assortative mating is, is that there has to be a choice made mm -hmm. at the, like at the time that they choose to be together. And if they were the, um, different when they chose or the same when they chose and then they changed over time, then that doesn't count. It also doesn't count it, it doesn't count really if what's going on is you're getting pockets of people who are the same and they have no other option right. than like small to town. with each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it doesn't count in, in situations where the similarity might be there because someone else chose, like in the cases of arranged marriages um, where you might get a similarity. And I don't, I don't think I, I feel like they mention those, um, those possibilities in the paper, but I don't think that they had a way of actually being able to tell which was which. And I think that definitely would right. matter. And those are like in interestingly important, like especially the one that you said, like whether you grow grow to be more With similar. Small town, everybody's an Episcopalian or somebody like yeah. or something like that. Yeah. They all went to the same church. So of course they're going to have similar um, traits as defined by the study. So let me ask you just in general, if you and Jen took a personality test, 
political orientation test or whatever. Like, do you think that you guys are kind of similar? I do. I mean, I would have to go like trait by trait. I think I'm probably a little taller for being a guy than she is for being a woman, but barely. And, you know, neither of us smoke. We both drink, but I drink more. I don't know if I drink more compared to other guys than she drinks more compared to other women. Um, I, I would say that because we've been together for so long, we've definitely had our interests merge, you know, like, well, I think we came equipped with a lot of similar attitudes and predilections, tastes. We both always love to travel. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I think we are. And what about you and Nikki and, and you and yeah, your I guess wife? so. It's like it's almost like a oh yeah, my first wife, I guess we're, we're different um, in in more ways. Um, that's because you don't have the wisdom. when you get married at 22 (laughs) Um, so so for instance i was hetero and she was not (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if they looked at that in this study but that is that's a pretty significant negative correlation (laughs) i mean depending on how you measure it we both really liked women (laughs) that's true exactly that's the thing statistics are so flexible Uh, you know, it's sort of like a Necker cube where sometimes, depending on what's going on, you focus on like the glaring differences. And you're like, I can't believe like two people who, you know, one likes super violent movies and one likes rom- rom-coms. That's crazy that they're so different. But, you know, I'd say I'd say like in large part <clears throat> we're similar. And the the similarity on the, the things that are important to you um yeah. Uh, like I feel like I have more overlap. So sense of humor, I think, is a mm. huge one for me where if somebody, you know, like there are people who who barely put up with the things I say and would constantly be sort of judging me for the things I say. And I couldn't like be with somebody like that, obviously. You know, it's, uh, it's already hard enough to feel good about myself. I need somebody <laughs> to laugh at my, my jokes. <laughs> yeah, that is something that every man has a right to have. <laughs> exactly. Sex and... Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we can mold their sense of humor and their tastes and preferences. Totally. That's what I, I, I was telling my friend who's wondering whether to have kids or not. I was like, no, listen, you have this... <laughs> little thing of clay this like like this big stone that you can carve into exactly like how you want and how they should be objectively also you know right <laughs> um you did kind of an epic takedown of the way the study doesn't support that birds of a feather are <laughs> likely to flock together i want to also put some pressure on uh the opposites <laughs> attract and that this study shows that that conventional Omar, shut the fuck up. God damn it. Um, so <laughs> now you can threaten him. Now you can really threaten him. <laughs> I know, exactly. Like this. I'm calling the mobile youth euthanasia like van. You have a syringe in your hand. Like, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. They'll be like, wow, he seems fine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Trust me, he's in a lot of pain. He's suffering. <laughs> It's so, sad. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel like opposites attract isn't about being together over the long term, which is what this mm-hmm. study is actually analyzing, right? They're not analyzing who you might want to hook up with at a bar or, you know, right. in the office or something like that. There's something about just, okay, you're going to live together that you yeah. just have to, there's only so much difference 
that like living in a, the same household and having that be remotely harmonious can tolerate. You know yeah. what I mean? It still might even be true for all the study shows. I don't know if it is, but that you might be attracted to uh, a whole different kind of person, you know, in the short term, like the short term. in the yeah. long term. And when you're really, that might be a quite different. Yeah, it's interesting. So they say our analysis like was restricted to studies of co-parents, engaged pairs, married pairs, and or cohabiting pairs, cohabitating pairs. Uh, all I'm saying is the opposites attract saying is more, I think, for the, the, the short term, the immediate. Right. Like what kind of porn are you looking at? You <laughs> That's real, the real question. Yeah. 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 I, I, that is actually an interesting question. Like do people look at, at, at people who differ from them in terms of whatever height weight ethnicity um with yeah i guess ethnicity being a big one you can't tell things like income and extroversion (laughs) (laughs) i feel like you don't think (laughs) maybe yeah maybe uh riley reed is an extrovert classic (laughs) (laughs) she's very short though uh i mean who (laughs) i actually know a woman who ran into riley reed at a grocery store in las vegas and totally went up to her and was like, oh, my God, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I bet Riley Reed was cool about that. Oh, I'm sure she was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we have anything else to say about this? I don't think so. You know, this wasn't one of those studies that we uh, that, w- that we had strong opinions about. But I do like it, it is an interesting question. And I'm still I st- I still think there's more research to be done. (laughs) Yeah. You might almost say that there's an unlimited amount of research that could be done about a question (laughs) like this. Yeah. A lot of careers can be sustained. A lot of status quos can be maintained. Um, All right. Should we come back, talk about Blood Meridian? Let's do it. All right. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know when you're trying to fall asleep and your brain just won't stop talking? You want to just relax, sink into the bed, and let your thoughts dissolve or drift away peacefully, but instead they're racing back and forth like a Tasmanian devil, some stressful thing you have tomorrow, a tense conversation you had earlier, movie quotes, podcast ideas, issues at work, old dog problems a three-month-old overdue car registration, you name it. I can relate to a lot of this. Well, it turns out one great way to make these racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. I know so many people who have turned to therapy and the benefits are so apparent. Dealing with trauma, just understanding yourself and your relationships better, learning coping skills to deal with the vile bureaucracy and stresses of everyday life. Therapy can turn your life around. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. They design it to be convenient, flexible. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. 
Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for all of your support and all the ways that you do support us. We couldn't do it without you. We wouldn't do it without you. So we really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We promise we read everything. Don't always respond to everything, but we definitely read it. Uh, you can tweet to us or X to us, whatever, at Tamler at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards. You can join the lively Reddit forums at our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram at Very Bad Wizards. And if you would so find it in your heart to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or give us a review, you can do that. You can also listen to us on Spotify, subscribe there and even rate us there. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can always sign up for our Patreon. It is, after all, our Patreon supporters who gave us the idea to do this episode, and we're very grateful for them. Uh, but you get something, too. If you join at our $1 per episode tier, you get all of our episodes ad-free. You also get access to all of my beat compilations. There are seven volumes of those. At $2 and up, you get access to all of our bonus content. That includes every bonus episode that we've put out since we started doing this. Uh, includes access to our Ambulators podcast about Deadwood. and includes access to Tamler and Robert Wright's new podcast called Overton Windows. Um, and you, in fact, need to be a member to get access to that at all. Uh, at $5 and up, you, if you are one of these members, you know that you got to vote on an episode topic. Um, you get to select a couple times of a year the episode topics um, that Patreon members suggest. You also get access to our five-part Brothers Karamazov series. You get access to some of Tamler's lectures on Plato's Symposium, 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 and access to my intro psych lecture videos that I did a few years ago. And finally, at $10 and up, you get to ask us a question and we will answer it on video once a month. Uh, we also release those for audio um, on audio for our $2 and up subscribers. So so everybody who has access to the bonus content gets to hear the Ask Us Anythings once a month, but you get to ask one at $10 and up. And if you so choose to watch us on YouTube, you get to see us actually answering your questions. Um, thank you, everybody, for... Oh, and if you want, you can support us. You can also donate to us on PayPal. You can buy some swag. You can buy a cool 
t-shirts from Cotton Bureau. You can buy uh, some mugs, you know, go crazy. Uh, Christmas isn't quite here yet, but plan ahead. So thank you to everybody for all the support that you give us. We really, really appreciate it. And now back to the episode. All right, let's dive into Blood Meridian. So this was our Patreon-selected topic, uh, the the most voted on topic for um, our, what is it, bi-annual Patreon-selected Bi or semi. Semi, semi. We don't know. (laughs) One of those two, twice a year. Uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. It was published in 1985. Uh, it is considered, I guess, by many to be his best book and considered by others to be one of the best American novels ever written, So, which is all to say this is a, like an extremely well-regarded book, even though initially it apparently wasn't that well-received. Critics like Harold Bloom, I pulled up a, an interview with Harold Bloom where he said that though it took him three times to get through the book because he was upset by the violence, uh, by the time he finished that reading on the third try, he thought that Cormac McCarthy had attained genius with the book. Um, I uh, had a similar experience with the book, like uh, started reading it twice, um, got about 70 pages in. I don't know if I was if it was just the violence, but also just the lack of a kind of driving narrative or a character yeah. you could follow yeah. and, and empathize with and, and it's funny because I, I came across a lot of people who said that, that they had the same experience that Harold Bloom had that they started it and gave it up you know once you read it though it's you realize it's incre- this yeah. is fucking total it's masterpiece fucking this is like one of the best books I've ever read I don't even know <clears throat> yeah I don't know totally. what to make of it but I yeah yeah I did I think I made a mistake in trying to listen to it on an audiobook on a long road trip that I had because the the way that it's written just does it's you really need to read it i think you need to look at those words and in fact i needed to many times reread passages because of the the style of writing yeah um so one of the things that it that makes this impressive it took mccarthy um like mccarthy started it and stopped it it took him a few years to actually get it done he conducted like a just a ton of extensive research so one of the things that he did was travel to the geographical locations in the northern mexico and and southwest u.s um, and just took extensive notes of like the, the the plant life, the the geographical flora and fauna and the rocks, like all that stuff that he describes in such great detail. He le- learned Spanish. There's a lot of Spanish through the book, which I meant to ask you. Did that trip you up at all? Yeah, when I was uh, reading this while I was camping, I didn't have access to the Internet. And so, like, there was Spanish word. Like, I just had to move past it. Sometimes yeah. the Kindle knew what it was, but sometimes the Kindle <laughs> right. didn't. And, like, there was no internet. My daughter, who's taken five years of Spanish, was no help. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and even for me, like, there were a lot of times where I was like, how would I know what this is if I yeah. didn't know Spanish? But then there's, like, a lot of Mexican words and I'm sure a lot of historical, like, yeah. uh, words as there are in English. You want to know a funny little thing like that? Like... Uh, there's this guy, uh, Tolbin, the ex-priest, but when I first, he doesn't put dashes in things. And so when I first came across it, I thought he was the ex-priest and I just thought that was some (laughs) Cormac McCarthy with some new word that would probably has some reference in like 19th century American (laughs) Western. So literally like two thirds of the way of the book that I was realized, oh, it's the ex-priest. God, (laughs) I probably was spared that because of the audio book. (laughs) 
Uh, so another way that this is accurate that McCarthy did his research is that it's based on real historical uh, events and people. So it's based on the Glanton gang, which was a, a group of men who had been paid by um, Mexican authorities. So they were veterans of the Mexican-American War. Um, and a couple of years later, they were paid by Mexican authorities essentially to just travel through that region to clear the area of Apaches, right? They were a nuisance to to the settlers there. And bring back scalps. As and bring back scalps. So they were paid like 200 bucks per scalp um, to, to bring back. So Glanton and his, we believe to be second in command, the Judge Holden, who we'll talk a lot about, uh, actually let out this gang. And they, uh, they didn't stop at killing Apaches. They started killing like peaceful uh, Indians uh, just to take their scalps so that they could get more money. They started killing uh, Mexicans en masse in these small towns. Um, they, they really seemed to be indiscriminate and capricious about their violence. And so many of the events of the book seem based on, on the actual events that happened. And, and yeah, so, and like one of the primary sources was this book, Confession for McCarthy, was this book, Confessions of a Rogue by Samuel Chamberlain, who's, I think, the only person who ever mentions Judge Holden mm-hmm. um, and describes him. And, and describes uh, him fairly, you know, like I think there's certain things that McCarthy took to a greater extreme, but really right. tall. He yeah. was beardless, if not completely hairless, yeah. like the judge. And, you know, the, this kid is from New England, not from where is he from? Tennessee. I think. He's from Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. Chamberlain like felt that the judge disliked him, but was always very polite to him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really, really cool quote. Yeah. And uh, and you can so yeah the seeds of the villainous judge appear in like a couple of passages in in that Chamberlain book, um, but of course McCarthy turns him into like arguably one of the greatest villains ever put to paper. Um, uh, a really interesting, compelling might be the wrong word, but but no, uh, definitely compelling. Yeah, like, yeah, but in a way that I mean, he's also you... repelling. Yes, no, <laughs> yeah. true. That's very, that's very true. Like he's not this kind of roguish anti-hero. I mean, he has a kind of charisma, but it's one that makes you feel icky. You know, uh, when I was reading it, I thought to myself, this is a lot like Colonel Kurtz, um, uh, from Heart of Darkness and, um, Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Yeah. Kurtz has more of a weariness to him uh, yeah. than the judge. The judge never gets tired. He no, never, that's right. He, in fact, he doesn't sleep. On what? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't sleep. He appears to not need to sleep. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're just gonna give the rough outline of the plot because a lot there's. It's really more a book about like the po- some powerful scenes that are strung together. But the gist of the plot is that this kid, a 16 year old from Tennessee, uh, joins up with. Um, the army, uh, this is after the Mer- uh, Mexican-American War, and he joins an outfit commanded by uh, Captain White, right? So, yeah. Um, Captain White. Um, that is essentially uh, running an illegal war. Um, they are, uh, I think what happened is after the Mexican-American War, there were still Americans who were upset at the, the way that the treaty had been made. And so they took it upon themselves to go down there and conquer land uh in mexico to like back for the u.s so it's a totally like off off the books maybe you know maybe the proto-cia was uh, a <laughs> yeah <them. laughs> exactly yeah. 
you think it's going to be the whole book when you mm-hmm. read it for the first time, you know, and yeah. this is like a like a critique or satire of Manifest Destiny because right. the way this captain talks about it, he talks about uh, Mexicans as incapable of governing themselves. He actually says manifestly incapable of governing themselves. Huh. And so they just need us to come and settle, civilize them and show them the light, you know. It doesn't end well um, early in the book. (laughs) That's so funny. I love that. (laughs) Early in the book, they get their ass handed to them by Comanches. Um, And uh, and the uh, the kid uh, escapes, you know, death, but but um, gets imprisoned. The kid gets imprisoned for this, uh, you know, by Mexican authorities for this illegal uh, shit that he was doing with Captain White. And the way that he gets out of prison is that uh, the Glanton gang comes into town and they are being paid to to uh, scalp Apaches. And they essentially, uh, one of the kid's friends, Toadvine, convinces the Glanton gang that they, he and, uh, and the kid and another guy are effective Indian killers and they should recruit them. And so they essentially get taken out of prison, join the Glanton gang. With the Glanton gang, they traverse large, like large portions of the U.S. and Mexico on a rampage, killing again the points that they're hired to kill Apaches. But they go, um, like I said before, they go into these sleepy towns, uh, start killing people just like sometimes instrumentally, sometimes for kicks. And finally, they end up sort of settling down in the like in Yuma territory at the Colorado River where they commandeer a ferry um and the Glanton gang is sort of running this ferry and they they're like killing people and stealing their money people who want to cross and there the the Yuma Indians get pissed off it's basically attack them kill them all it's like a massacre Glanton dies only a few people escape the kid escapes the judge escapes um they go their separate ways he gets down to San Diego finally in California, gets uh, a doctor to heal him. And at that point, like he sort of just moves on with his life. Like there's the judge makes an appearance in San Diego when he's in a jail and then disappears. And boom, fast forward 30 years. The kid has is now the man and he's been roaming the country, the territories like Mexico, the U.S. And I don't know where else, like uh, seemingly a lot of different places. 30 years later, encounters the judge in a saloon. The judge hasn't aged, looks exactly the same, uh, seems like he hasn't changed. And at the very end, as the man goes to the outhouse, he walks into an outhouse and the judge is standing there naked. We read that the judge grabs him uh, naked and shuts the door. And that's the last we hear. Um, we really don't know what happened, but I think we can assume. Well, he, we get uh, the perspective of somebody who opens the door. Who afterward. opens the door and they say, like, good God. Yeah, like, you don't want to <laughs> yeah. go in there. Yeah, yeah. But that uh, could be referring to, like, the shit that somebody took before, you know, so you don't... I mean, know. the judge is described as seven feet tall, so yeah. I imagine it's really <laughs> exactly. impressive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, then, uh, and then we get a, a, an epilogue, right? Yeah, of people picking up bones. Yeah. Should we talk about as a way of launching into like what we think this is about, the epigraphs? What do you think? 
Yeah, let's start with the epigraphs. I think they do set the stage. The first is from Paul Valéry, French poet. Your ideas are terrifying and your hearts are faint. Your acts of pity and cruelty are absurd, committed with no calm, as if they were irresistible. Finally, you fear blood more and more, blood and time. So I'd say one of the more inscrutable of the epigraphs, like in terms of uh, trying to parse out its connections to the rest of the text. Yeah. As opposed maybe to the next two. Yeah, although the next one by Jacob Böhm, I don't know how to pronounce it, who is a German uh, mystic, uh, reads, It is not to be thought that the life of darkness is sunk in misery and lost as if in sorrowing. There is no sorrowing, for sorrow is a thing that is swallowed up in death, and death and dying are the very life of the darkness. So this is where like the Gnosticism of the book and a lot of the criticism about the book usually starts. He was a Gnostic, right? And isn't the idea here from this epigraph that, like, I feel like the judge could say this. He's such a, he has such a cheerful perspective about the darkness and death uh, of the world. Like, I feel like if if there's one thing he stands principally opposed to, it's sorrow. Yeah. And uh, um, McCarthy makes it a point to have the judge smile across various times in the book where nobody in their right mind would be smiling. Yeah. Um, like a beaming smile. Yeah, yeah, know, like glowing. Like, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and it almost makes him endearing at times. <laughs> like it seems to me like, oh, there's a nice guy. Well, he is like a broken clock is right twice a day. And that sometimes for whatever reason, something will strike him. Like he wanted to save the tarot card dealer from yeah. Glanton and like the old lady that Glanton is about to shoot. And so he does. Uh, you want to read the last one? Clark, uh, this is from the Yuma Daily Sun, June 13th, 1982. Clark, who led last year's expedition to the Afar re- region of northern e- Ethiopia, and UC Berkeley colleague Tim White also said that a reexamination of a 300,000-year-old fossil skull found in the same region earlier showed evidence of having been scalped. I mean, these do a pretty good, decent job of setting the stage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this one, I feel like there is a st- almost straightforward reading to that of like this shit has been going on for 300,000 years, this kind of evil and war and brutality and depravity, and it's going to go on for 300,000 more yeah. or however many more that this wor- this earth is still like pumping along. Yeah, to me these these three do seem uh, unified in in this bleak view about the world being s- so intrinsically evil, so as to not even sh- we shouldn't be surprised. So the Valerie quote um, to me seems like a condemnation, uh, like the judge would be telling the kid, "You are faint of heart. Like you act like the kid does act sometimes out of pity and sometimes out of cruelty." Um, in a way that I think the judge would find absurd. The judge, I think, doesn't isn't motivated by either of those things. The world is a toy to him. He just wants say over what happens. <clears throat> and you fear blood more and more, blood and time, um, which I think maybe over time the kid starts feeling that way. The, the Jacob Berman quote about the universe being pretty dark, I think is straightforward, or the world being pretty dark. The sorrow, <clears throat> though, the part about that, that sorrow is not compatible with 
the life of darkness is kind of interesting, I think. Like, in that way, it's not straightforward. I, like, it took me, I'm still not sure that I understand it right. But in the context of the other quote, I took it as, like, the sentimentality that would make you be sad that the world has darkness and death has no real place in a world that is this dark and bleak. Like. Um, it just swallowed up yeah yeah let's talk about the like what we loved about this book we haven't really talked that much about it right so so i'm curious what you thought like i've never read anything quite like it uh and that's almost an understatement and i've read cormac mccarthy i've read like four of his other novels four or five of his other novels and this is a different thing it kind of pulls you in once you're in it pulls you in the plot even though, like, you know, they're they're moving gradually west, you know, there are some character arcs, if like, barely, if you can call them yeah. that, although often those seem to take place off, off page like off or camera. something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just scene after scene of just blood-soaked depravity to the point where you, you almost can't believe it, uh, mixed in with the judge... Uh, waxing philosophical and these gorgeous, beautiful uh, descriptions of the desert in all the diff- all the seasons, in the deathly heat, and then in the snow and rain and cold, and then I think towards the end, it becomes more explicitly or blatantly surreal. It's always teetering on the edge of some kind of preternatural, just nightmare. You know, like some kind of nightmarish uh vision once you get to that last scene in the bar in the whorehouse the brothel with the judge 30 years later and the bear the dancing bear that gets shot yeah you're just like like i I was just my like i'm gonna have nightmares about that the dancing bear i'm gonna have nightmares about the judge in the fucking toilet in the outhouse like the seven foot guy that opens up his arms as you enter and like for some reason and can't escape it's like in that way like the book sort of draws you in into it without your consent it's 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 intimidating to talk about because i almost don't know what i think about it i think it's like the last thing i'll say is you, you think it might be this critique of manifest destiny and something you can wrap your head around you know this idea yeah. that uh americans are this civilizing force across a savage land and it shows the 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 lie of that you know, I've seen that before. Yeah. Uh, I've read this would be like the best example of it. It is that like in one sense, but then it becomes way bigger. It becomes more like all encompassing, more mythic, more metaphysical. It but really becomes about like the soul of humanity and, and like the those maybe even bigger than that, just the universe. You know, like what yeah. kind of universe is this good or evil? Yeah. Yeah, I, to- I absolutely agree. I, I think that it is shrinking the book to try to make it such a local critique when when I think it it really is a, a cosmic book and moreover I just like you know there everybody is evil like <laughs> there is it's indiscriminate in its description of the savagery of of Apaches and Yuma Indians as well as the Glanton gang so it seems to be talking about humanity to get like to give an example of the visceral violence that that makes even I think somebody like me who kind of digs like fiction violence um, recoil is like scenes in which 
um, some of the Indians are are killing babies and hanging them like by their like I don't remember by their throats like their and McCarthy describes them as like larvae of some some sick creature that's not of this world it's like or you know or part of the glanton gang is like killing babies by like grabbing them by the legs and swinging them bashing their head against the rocks and their brains are oozing out through their little baby soft spots it's just like so fucked up like there's just so many scenes like this one of the things that plenty of people have have said about this that makes it extra distressing is there's no McCarthy isn't saying as he's telling you about this. He's not he's not saying it's evil. He's not saying it's bad. Like the characters aren't saying that. They're just sort of matter-of-factly going about this violence and Car- uh, McCarthy is presenting it to you um in a way that is just more distressing to me and in a super effective way of conveying the true to like terrible nature of humankind and perhaps of just existence one of the interesting aspects in that way is the kid becomes kind of right at the end right at the end of the book like this antagonist of the judge the judge says he's been the antagonist all along but you never get the sense that the kid is resisting or not participating in the violence although like thinking back you realize i guess like some of the most depraved and arbitrary acts of cruelty and viciousness like i don't remember the kid being involved in, in any of those because but the, but also the kid kind of disappears for a lot of the book you know you you stop yeah. getting it from his perspective and the fact that this kid is considered the good guy in this book, or at least that's how it's set up right. at the end, you know, with the judge representing this, I don't know, satanic, Gnostic, archon-like evil, uh, the judge has remembered these 30 years that the kid was, like, he showed a little empathy for the, for the yeah. Indians when he was killing them. And only killed them when there was a reason to. He didn't do it completely indiscriminately. That's your window into something that is, um, you know, maybe a resist, like some kind of resistance against the addictive force of violence and war and brutality. There are little moments throughout when the kid is part of the Glanton gang that... The kid seems like maybe the only person who is not really that afraid of the judge and will do things, um, even say, uh, like, even just in his speaking loudly enough where everybody else is afraid that the judge will hear. Small moments where the kid seems to exert his own will in a way that, that is not concerned with the judges. If I'm right, the judge might view him as an antagonist but also as a, like, it does seem like the judge is calling him to be more like him because he sees right. maybe that this kid has will. The potential. And most of the other people don't have a will. And the will for the judge is so strong that I think that if he can't call him over to be on his team, he's going to view him as as a competitor of sorts or as like somebody that he needs to like come to terms with. Like the judge has this, I don't have it in front of me, but the judge has like a really interesting uh, little speech about how 
it bothers him that there are there is life in this world that he has not like approved of. Yeah, I have the quote actually. Whatever exists, he says, whatever in creation exists without my knowledge exists without my consent. This is after he just killed like birds and was like uh, yeah. put it like pinning them in his little book. He looked about at the dark forest in which they were bivouacked. He nodded towards the specimens he'd collected. These anonymous creatures, he said, may seem little or nothing in the world, yet the smallest crumb can devour us. Any smallest thing beneath young rock out of men's knowing. Only nature can enslave man. And only when the existence of each last entity is routed out and made to stand naked before him will he properly suzerain the earth. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think he had high hopes for the kid because he sensed yeah. like the will in the kid, yeah. like an agency that the other men lacked. Um, but it was a surprise to me when the kid, after the they uh, the whole gang is most of the gang has been killed by the Yuma, the kid just decides I'm done with the judge and yeah. um, won't rejoin with him like i was a little surprised i was like did i miss something did they have a fight because there was no real indication that he would just all of a sudden decide i'm i'm done with this guy was it glanton like did he have loyalty to glanton what was keeping him there in the first place you know yeah i don't know and that's like uh what you know one of the things about this book is even though it is from the perspective of the kid we don't get much uh, understanding of what's going on in the kid's mind. Like he's, he doesn't speak a whole lot. We don't, we're just being told what the kid is saying. So we never have like the kid's inner thoughts and no, nothing. Um, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing like that. I, you know, I, I don't think I was surprised. Like I, I think I got the vibe and this is, it's weird to say about a book, like, but I got the vibe that the kid never really, felt kinship yeah. with the judge and that the judge's like attempts at like befriending him kind of like exactly like that Chamberlain quote that I didn't read until after um, where where he says like the judge would always be friendly with me and talk to me but I hated him um, it made sense after reading that quote that maybe McCarthy was like maybe this kid just never really cares for the judge and what's going on is just like a you know he's a wandering soul that's pretty fine with violence so this is a good way to get paid like if it's just the weird judge with his like weird imbecile <laughs> right, next to him. Right, right, right. Um, That's the difference. But and by the way, like also a child, probably a child molester, uh, rapist. Well, that's um, <laughs> in real life. Do we get the uh, sense that, in the book that he was? Um, so there is a, the scene where um, it's in the in the Yuma River um, when they break into his room and it's he has the imbecile. Uh, and he's naked and he has like a 10 year old oh, yeah. girl That's naked right. with him. Jesus, you block certain yeah. things out almost with this spot. <laughs> I know. When he's walking yeah. around with the imbecile on like the leash and then you just picture yeah, that, it's just that it's, a... it really is just an insane fucking book and the imagery of it. The jagged mountains were pure blue in the dawn and everywhere birds twittered and the sun when it rose caught the moon in the west so that they lay opposed to each other across the earth. The sun white hot and the moon a pale replica as if they were the ends of a common boar beyond whose terminals burned worlds past all reckoning. It's like, was it in the McCarthy article that we read um, where maybe it was in this where he's talking about like the unconscious, but I think I was reading something about his writing process, like how actually, even though he spent years planning this book, he wrote a lot of it in like, like bursts, very few. Yeah. Bursts. I think I read a quote from him about like, not that, that writing 
is really about channeling. Like he's tapping into something. Like it's like the muse. The what was your experience reading this book? It's incredible. So like the thing that makes me put this book like hold it in such high regard is it's not just like this amazing uh, historical fiction about like a real life gang and like these villainous people, super detailed and, you know, uh, told in a way that I'm, I'm compelled to keep reading. Like that's all true, but it is those, those moments of weirdness that, and the, the language, like the religious imagery that he uses, like the, the weird symbolism, like the descriptions of the judge as being like, almost supernatural early on and like almost definitely supernatural late on. Um, he's like tying this genre of Western historical novel and making it into something that seems to just tap into a deeper layer, like, you know, r- r- ripping the seams of the world apart to show you yeah. like what lies beneath. I don't know. I don't think I've had the experience of, of, yeah. I texted you that the secret joke of your soul is that you are like a secret (laughs) Gnostic. Like from what I understand about Gnosticism, isn't it that, 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 that evil is in the heart of the world, like the world itself, reality itself is evil. It's only something not earthly that can be good. And one clear interpretation of this novel is that that's what at bottom this world is. That's how this civilization got built. Not just the American, the United States of America, although for sure, uh, for sure that, that, but like all civilization. And we can pretend that we have progressed morally, but at bottom, this is what it is, you know? Just killing, yeah. buying a it's, dog and then th- th- throwing it in the river and, and having a drunk guy shoot it. When I was reading that, I was like, I need to know what Tamler felt so about this. So there was somebody else who had read it and was like, did you get to the scene? I don't want to spoil it, but did you get to the scene? Where, like, I can, I'm not like my daughter. Like, I can see <laughs> a movie or read a book where a dog dies. But yeah. The the Gnostic part, you know, I, I'm sure like if I dig around to Cormac McCarthy interviews or something, maybe he's talked more about this, but. You know, Gnosticism, like, is an umbrella term for so many different things. But one of the things that's, that seems to common is this belief that the material world is actually evil. That matter, just just the, the world of matter, is actually just the result of a demigod, like an evil demigod who, who created matter and trapped, like, the human, uh, like, trapped pieces of the divine spark like so in every human being like there is a little piece of the divine spark we're just like encased in this like evil material world so everything about this world is actually just evil like there is a god beyond this god like beyond yahweh who is associated with the demiurge it's just sort of like it's evil all the way down it's not that this was created like christians believe as a perfect world that then fell that evil got into it i have this quote from uh, from a paper on talking about the, the gnostic uh, interpretation of this book he says so whereas most thoughtful people have looked at the world they lived in and asked how did evil get into it the gnostics looked at the world they lived in and asked uh, how did good get into it? 
This was, of course, a very sensible question and remains so. After all, the Satan of Roman Catholicism, the Orthodox Church, and the Protestant Reformation is a strikingly domesticated, manageable, partitioned-off personification of evil. Something so big that evil is not really an applicable term because it is too small. For them, evil was simply everything that is, with the exception of the bits of spirit imprisoned here. And what they saw is what we see in the world of Blood Meridian. And I think that's the judge's view. Like, like evil doesn't really describe the judge well. It's like, I think he sees existence in this completely different way that like the thing to be explained is why people would have developed sensibilities like this to begin with. Like, this is a sort of a weird, a a weird view that, that there is good and evil. Um, All there is for him is, as he says, war. War is God. But then also the dance for him is important. And the dance. And the dance is the, like, you could look at the judge you can try to define the judge and it's like like holding like a, a balloon that's like in like olive oil or something like that. It's going to keep popping out. But in one way, he's yeah. a response to the evil. He, he's what you do in a world that's already evil. It's like, well, this is the world. You have to flow with the world as it is rather than resist it or pretend it's not like this or get you know, dour about it and start empathizing with the people that you're pay- you're being paid to kill. You know, the one thing the judge does is he is he is all in on what he's doing, and I think it offends him when people are in in whatever way resisting that. He's described in these ways, like so. Some of the things that he does seem really incredible and magical, and like. He even gives like us, you know, it's like McCarthy creates the scene where he's like giving a sermon on the Mount, basically. Like he is like a, like a twisted Christ figure. He's like the opposite. Right? He's like some sort of antichrist. I do think the judge, somebody from the perspective of the judge would think the kid having the occasional pang of sympathy for, you know, remember the guy who was dying, like the judge told him to kill him, but the, the kid was unwilling to actually do it. Um, uh, that weakness is one thing, but imagine how absurd it seems to think that your task in this world would be to like promote good. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's, you're not going to get anywhere that way. Like this world, can you can't like make this world a good place. There's uh, the epigraph to this James Elroy book, American Tabloid. Uh, he says, America was never innocent. We popped our cherry on the boat over and looked back with no regrets. You can't describe our fall from grace to any single event or set of circumstances. You can't lose what you lacked at conception. That feels like uh, what this yeah. book is. like, And, and not just America, right. but humanity. Like you said, humanity was never innocent. There was no fall from grace. Being, people were scalping people yeah. 300,000 years ago before any remnant of what we understand as civilization uh, started. So, you know, there's no noble savage. There's no noble civilized person. It's just all depravity and, and uh, cruelty. And I guess the kind of mindless violence, you know, uh, that's yeah. the that's the part that makes you that might make you feel like the world is really evil. These aren't even people who are doing it for some higher purpose or even their own benefit. 
they're not even sadistic. Yeah. yeah, they're not even like really. They're not like taking yeah. delight in this. It's just like a. It's just like another day. It's like a Wednesday for them to like I, kill and tie up and like rape. They and, go into some Mexican city at one point, a Mexican little town, not just to get supplies and to get some food and drink, and they end up just killing the whole town and scalping them. That was <laughs> yeah. not the plan, you know. It was just uh, no. every time they go somewhere. It, they'll just end up getting drunk. Sometimes it can almost have a kind of nobility, like when they kill the guy who wouldn't let the black uh, Jackson uh, sit at the same <laughs> yeah, table. Right. You know, uh, totally. it, you, it, you almost feel uh, okay about it because, again, like everybody is just on the spectrum of evil somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I think what's interesting is you're right. They don't take a kind of sadistic pleasure in doing it, except for maybe the judge, you know, who at least... Yeah, the judge takes, like, yeah. a delight. Like, that's the game for him. Like, yeah, like, with the little the, yeah. with the little kid. Yes, oh, right. God. He takes the little yeah. kid. He's, like, playing with the... You almost think, okay, maybe he's going to... Like Glanton did with the dog. Maybe he's going to... Yeah. Just for some reason, he likes this kid. He's going to save him. But no, he just scalps him. After bouncing yeah. him on his knee and, like, playing with him. Like, oh, God, man. Yeah. You know, like, they will yeah. suffer. They, like, a lot of... A lot of them, like, they could end up dead. They could end up in jail. It doesn't matter. They just can't stop themselves from, uh, like, lighting yeah. some guy on fire in a bar for, for no reason, yeah. you know? It's not like the movie trope where, like, everyone's laughing and, like, you know, they, they just do it. Um, and McCarthy is, I think, shows a lot of restraint or, or maybe he was a twisted mind himself, but I think he shows a lot of restraint to be able to present this violence in such a way where where I would have the temptation to moralize, even unwittingly, like describe these things as evil, whereas he just describes them. Um, and that does something to me, to just have them yeah. described. <laughs> yeah, I know. This book resists judgment. I think we both came across an article where yeah. someone said, the book is written in a way that makes ethical judgment seem naive, which I think is a very yeah. good way of describing how this book, this book makes you feel stupid for trying to yeah. reduce it to a critique of how we treated indigenous people, yeah. indigenous communities. It, it it certainly makes you feel stupid if you think there's anything exceptional about America, exceptionally good and moral about freedom and, uh, you know, respect for human rights. Yeah. It's like, no, that's, that's not how this thing gets built, you know. But yeah. I do, I think you're right in that the weirdness of it, the like nightmarish, just phantasmagorical quality of it is what kind of sets it apart from even like the smartest critique of easy moralism, you know, like it's beyond that. Yeah. It's beyond yeah. like, as we might be demonstrating beyond talking about almost, it's really a book that you feel beyond good and evil. It's a book that you feel more than yeah, you absolutely. Uh, can try to articulate what it is that that feeling reflects. This is just like a one of the many details that I'm so impressed by in the book, but the way that the geography is described, like the setting that McCarthy puts these people in, like the it's it does seem like if you want to describe the world as being so evil to its core, the the wasteland of the desert that's often described, sometimes explicitly like referencing a, a hellscape with demons walking on it, but it just also like the 
just beauty. The, like yeah the amazing beauty the 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 difficulty that that it is that you have surviving out there like nature is is both your enemy but also like this grandeur this beauty one thing we didn't mention like the the kid is described as being born under the leonid meteor showers like a bunch of falling stars and the night that he goes out to the to meet the judge uh, at the out and the un- unwittingly meet the judge in the outhouse there's also a meteor shower yeah. going on yeah, yeah, I agree. The geography, yeah. you know, and I have a special sympathy. Like, I, I really love the desert yeah. and I love that. So I, I see the possibility of it, you know, the whole go west young man. That is what apparently yeah. just motivated Chamberlain, who's loosely, who the kid is loosely based on. The kid, the kid. just, you know, his home life is untenable. So he just heads west. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting is that the judge, his name is Judge Holden from Texas. We don't get the sense that he's like uh, went to law school <laughs> and has a degree. <laughs> right. The uh, kid, the kid asks judge of what? And, and is it Tobin? Who's like, Shh, yeah. he's going to hear you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he has this speech where he talks about like himself as a suzerain, which I had to look up by the way, but he at least yeah. gives his definition yeah, of that's it. Right. He says that yeah. it is above the law, above uh, local laws. He's the leader of the leaders. So in one sense, he's, he is, uh, the thing that makes a mockery of whatever local laws happen to be. And those laws could be, you know, moral principles, principles of human rights, you know, declaration of independence, whatever. Like he makes a mockery of all that. He stands above it. He rules over that. And yet he is very well versed in the law. And it's very funny yeah. when, when at the end, when the kid kills his horses so that he won't be able to yeah. follow him, yeah. he, he ends up tracking him down. And while the kid is there with a gun kind of trained on him, he just spouts, uh, what, I think I put this down. Like horse yeah, law. He just yeah. spouts. It's like, yeah, like this is property. And like, this is the penalty for like stealing a man's birth for like, yeah, uh, they lay under the board, like hide of a dead ox and listen to the judge calling to them. He called out points of jurisprudence. He cited cases. He expounded upon those laws pertaining to property rights in beast mansuet. And he quoted from the cases of attainder insofar as he reckoned them germane to the corruption of blood in the prior and felonious owners of the horses now dead among the bones. Then he spoke of other things. And the, it's what's interesting is the ex-priest leans, like, like, don't listen to him. Like, this is some kind of deadly temptation. Yeah, like, Stop yeah. your ears. Right. It's like the sirens. Yeah. Like the sirens. Exactly. <laughs> and so there's this interesting relationship with the judge and the law. At, uh, he's at once, like, beyond it, but then also a representative of it in some way and an expert in it. Yeah. Like, he's, like, fascinated. Like, maybe it's part of just the game that he likes to play. You know, one thing he shows is expertise across like all domains. Like he's like delivering lectures on paleontology and and biology and spirituality. I don't know. Like this is maybe we save this for later. But what the fuck is the judge then? Because thirty years later, the kid is like he didn't look any different. Like he hadn't aged. Yeah. Throughout the the judge demonstrates like exceptional skill. Like that amazing scene where he he directs the men on how to like make gunpowder so they can like at the last minute uh, save themselves from the the Apaches or the Comanches. I don't remember. Um, you must have geeked out about that. Oh my God, man. It was like, yeah, it, but it was like a, sp- uh, yeah, he's like MacGyver 
<laughs> but like Promethean MacGyver, you know, he's yeah. like literally the power of fire in his hands. And yeah. he's, and, but like, I don't know how else to say it. Like a, a, a pagan version of it. It's like where, like where the, they're performing like a, a ritual, like a Dionysian ritual, to, uh, but pissing, you know, where he's like chanting for them all to like piss into this pot as he's fr- in a frenzy stirring it. And then like, uh, and this is all to save their lives and the sun that they need to dry out the, the gunpowder that he's made with bat guano and, and piss and, and sulfur, um, may be blocked by a cloud and they're all staring at that cloud and it barely squeaks by without blocking the sun. And only because of that, they're able to like load up their guns with gunpowder and, and, uh, successfully. And then the judge tricks them and, and they massacre all of, of the Indians. Um, that's just insane. And then you get these moments where he seems to have preternatural like ability and like there's a tease where you know the judge is doing coin tricks which also of course yeah. it's got my heart you just love the judge <laughs> yeah i do and then like he performs this this trick that all of a sudden doesn't seem like sleight of hand like it seemed like he was yeah. actually doing magic and and by the end where he's like not aged a bit like this is going to sound stupid man but the very last scene when we just assume that he killed the kid. I like, I felt like <laughs> what happened is the judge devoured him, ate him or engulfed him. Like when he wraps his big arms around him, almost like a, like it feels like it's an unholy sort of like absorption of the kid. And yeah. so I got the sense of the, like the shock and horror of the men. At first I thought rape, because men like that wouldn't be shocked at just the killing, right? No. Someone gets shot in the bathroom, like, that's whatever, you know? No, yeah. you get the sense that something beyond what we can... But when you say devour, do you mean in that supernatural way? Like, it just, like, opened up and enveloped the kid into his body? Like, he didn't just chop him up and start yeah. eating yeah, I mean, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, or, like, this is why it sounds really stupid for me to say it. Like, I mean... The, the visceral reaction I might have to seeing some completely uh, unnatural way in which somebody might be devouring somebody else, like opening yeah. their jaws so big, like to reveal he's like some sort of actual monster or like like yeah. some something that just doesn't look natural. Like, of course, McCarthy is not telling us for this very reason. Like, I'm sure he likes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like and not telling us whether he is indeed supernatural, although yeah. there are a lot of hints in that direction the fact that he doesn't age or grow hair but you know you know at the end the style changes and it becomes almost like the style of it is uh something that you might find in like a fantasy novel like a dark fantasy novel or something like that (laughs) right they say he will never he says he will never die and it and you know it just keeps repeating and it becomes like an evil spell or something but he's chanting it yeah he's chanting it but he's it's still him saying it and we don't know if he never dies no in fact yeah what i was gonna say when you're saying that is either he, he the either he is supernatural or he's convinced that he is supernatural. Yeah. Um, like the, like that. Yeah. There's hints throughout the book, uh, not hints, but a couple of times there's accusations that he's just crazy. 
Yeah. Um, and at the very end, the kid says, like, I don't want any of your craziness. But when the kid says it, I still think the kid, there is some draw that he's had, but what he's doing is resisting the, yeah. the, the, the judge. Like, we're here, the judge is like a devil tempting. Like, And it does seem like maybe the kid succumbs to it finally. You know, he almost escaped with his yeah. soul. And then he didn't. You know, he still went yeah. back to the to the brothel that night or he still he didn't leave once the insane uh violence of the bear being shot a lot of animals being shot and killed the mules going off the cliff and then just exploding onto the rocks that's another Uh, one of those like senseless like i think they just think it's funny that like 127 mules or whatever who are like on the edge of a cliff they just knock them knock them off he can get moralistic too. Uh, I think judge. you're right that the kid gets under his skin, but yeah. he has that speech at the end where he says, "Look, look at that man. See him. This man is hatless. You know his opinion of the world. You can read it in his face and his stance. Yet his complaint that man's life is no bargain max masks the actual case with him, which is that men will not do as he wishes them to. Have never done. Never will do." That's the way of things with him, and his life is so balked about by difficulty and becomes so altered of its intended architecture that he's a little more than a walking hovel, hardly fit to house the human spirit at all. Can he say such a man that there is no malign thing set against him, that there is no power, no force, no cause? What manner of heretic could doubt agency and claimant alike? Can you believe that the wreckage of his existence is unentailed? No liens, no creditors, the gods of vengeance and compassion alike lie sleeping in their crypt. So it's almost like I am acting on behalf of men like this who just are dominated by the world. They cannot express agency. They have no autonomy and they can't make other people do what they want. I am acting on their behalf or acting in a way that they can't for them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I I don't know if the judge doesn't... He pompously will speak... And like he he will pontificate with the best of them, but here he seems almost like he is feeling defensive, and that's the yeah. thing that only the kid can make him exactly. Feel is defensive. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you you put your finger on on it, right? That's it. Only ever comes out with the kid. He's so confident about everybody else. Yeah. Um, and uh, like it's you really feel like a one look from the kid, and he can tell. Like yeah. he can tell. Wait, this kid isn't really like like buying this like i gotta get to him <laughs> yeah he's calling yeah. he, he's not calling me on my bullshit like publicly he's just no. not taken in by it yeah whereas the other people will go you crazy but uh <laughs> they, they don't they're just spellbound by him anyway you know yeah and in fact like the the there is one time when toadvine when he does that that when he kills the little the little apache kid that he was yeah. keeping as a pet um toadvine is the one who goes up to him and says like you for like fuck you like i don't remember the words that he says and the, i don't think the judge even bats an eye to like no. the regular moral judgments of like regular people like that's eh, like whatever you know you're i'm he so clearly feels of himself as beyond that as if he were no mystery himself the bloody old hoodwinker <laughs> yeah.
And um, Toadvine, interestingly, does join him at the end when the kid oh, yeah, resists. Right. So, yeah. I mean, maybe we should do this in two parts and we can, this is, can be one of the things we talk about next time. But, you know, we meet Toadvine early in the book. He is the kid's entryway, I think, into both armies, but certainly the, yeah. the Glanton gang. And um, Toadvine also just engages in a totally random and inexplicable act of violence, ends up burning down a bar, like killing a guy, uh, getting the kid involved in it. But you wonder, this was right after the scene with the judge where he just calls the reverend a pedophile and goat fucker. Um, everybody right. like uh, burns down the barn that he's in and probably kills him. And he did it. And then they find him later. He says, "I, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't even know the guy. Never so, even heard of him." <laughs> and, and it's right after that that Toadvine does it, which almost suggests that maybe the judge is having this kind of contagious, yeah, malignancy effect or something like that. Yeah, like you do get the sense that that the judge is is maybe on some spiritual mission of like getting disciples. Um, yeah. yeah. And maybe in part two, we can talk about some of the other characters and some of like some key scenes, but the Glanton himself is kind of yeah. Uh, yeah. I an entry. Like we haven't talked yeah. pretty much at all about Glanton. All right. Should we wrap it up here for now? It's late yeah. also at night here. Um, there's so many things I want to talk about. The, I, yeah, and this is good because like the it can brew. Yeah. Like this stuff needs to brew in my head. And like yeah. after we talk, there are more even more brews. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well join us next time if there is a next time on Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> are you thinking we're gonna die? Is that where you're where are you going with it? Yeah. I think the world is gonna end. The Just a very bad wizard.